0: twelve oh nine Jeff Wagner, WTMJ so Eric, before you go, is this this is one of my favorite amusing stories of, of the day. You know, sometimes there are words in a foreign language that end up migrating into, say, English and and they become commonly used like an example would be uber you know U- uber is a german word okay yep. and and you know i guess it you know so you go, have somebody say eric Bilstad is uber buff or you know so and so is uber smart you know yeah, yep. and so it's it's one of those words that just kind of migrates angst is another one that that's a german word and occasionally it goes the other way now angela merkel is the the chancellor for germany she's going to be stepping down relatively soon Right. Have you ever? Okay. Have, have you ever used the phrase? And and I, I can't say the exact phrase on the radio, but um, either, well, like. Boy, that that's really awful. That was quite a poop show. Except you don't use the word poop. You know the word I'm I'm saying, right? Yes. yes okay. I, or a, or boy, you know what the Republicans did in the legislature the other day really created a poop storm. Okay, although you yeah. don't say the word poop, yes, right? I all right. So all right. So apparently, Merkel has been giving speeches, and she is <laughs> she she comes out and she says, well. This – and she's giving a speech in German, and she says, well, th- this has created a huge controversy. It's a real poop storm, although she doesn't say poop storm. She imports that word and has been using it on a regular basis. Well, <laughs> you know, because, well, you know, again, just like, like Uber migrates into the English language, mm-hmm. apparently mm-hmm. – Poop show or poop storm, except not that has migrated, and and like Germans are using th- this phrase. And somebody said to the, the chancellor, "You you realize that that's a vulgarity in English?" <laughs> and it was like, "Oh, really? Well, it just we, we think that that phrase was so apt. It just you know, so she, yeah, we you think so it's forgiving. so apt. And so yeah. oh, it, so we it's just so so of all the different things in English that might migrate to Europe, apparently you know that that phrase is migrating, and, mm. and it's a, the Chancellor of, of Germany is using it on a regular basis. And she said, well, it's, it's very apt to describe stuff. So um, i have to remember that if we ever take a news conference of hers live. Well, well, right. And it's like, yes, this is really created. A, and then and you put whatever the, the German word for storm is, but it's like poop, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Except no, she's not saying poop. So, all right. That was my little bit of foreign education here. You know, it's just, it's amazing what you end up finding. All right. We've got a lot of ground to cover on today's program. So glad to have you with us. A lot of local stories. Stories. The latest plan to resurrect Grand Avenue. And I mean, I hate to be cynical, but, you know, I've been I remember when Grand Avenue opened in 1982. And I I remember when it first became a ghost town. And I remember all the different plans we have. We're going to talk about that. And this Franklin Ballpark Commons, something that I have been skeptical about. Well, the developer now says, you know, that that 20 plus million dollars that you gave me? Well, it's not enough. I automa- I want another five million dollars. We will discuss that as well. But I want to start off with a story. Um, it, it comes from South Carolina, and it involves a, a sheriff. The guy's name is Rick Clark, not David Clark, but Rick Clark. All right? And this is from Pickens County, South Carolina. It doesn't matter, you know, where Pickens County is. What happens is a felon, um, yet on Tuesday morning, this is Thursday, Tuesday morning, a felon escapes from a South Carolina prison, Pickens County prison. He and another guy, they, they bust out of, of the prison. They're not saying quite how it happened, but the two of them, these two inmates, apparently attack two corrections officers, uh, beat them up. They don't kill them, but they beat them up, and, and they escape. So two of these prisoners are on the lam. One of the escapees was taken into custody a short distance from the prison. In the meantime, the other inmate, his name is uh, Bruce McLaughlin, 30 years old, um, he gets into a neighborhood in the general vicinity of the prison. He kicks in the door of a home. He arms himself with a metal tool that uh, you would be using for sharpening knives that he finds in the kitchen. The homeowner, who is a, a woman... She, now they're not giving out her name, but she's, she's in the home by herself. So she hears this guy kick in the door. So what she does is she retreats up into the bedroom. So this inmate starts following her up there. The story is he approaches her bedroom door. So she's got nowhere to go. I mean, you've got this escaped inmate. I don't know that she knew he was an escaped inmate at the time, but she's home alone. She somebody has busted into her house. She has retreated up to her bedroom. So now she's she's kind of cornered and the guy is, is coming up towards the bedroom. Well, what the escaped prisoner does not know is that this woman has a gun and Number one, she has a gun, and number two, she knows how to use it. So what she does is she pulls out her handgun, and she fires a single shot, hits the guy in the head, kills him, all right? Deputies uh, found him 3 a.m. – this is the middle of the night – 3 a.m. dressed in prison attire, an orange jumpsuit, and dead as a doornail. He had been in and out of the jail more than a dozen times on various charges since uh, 2006. He was awaiting trial on first-degree burglary and grand larceny charges. So he breaks into this lady's house in the middle of the night, starts coming up the stairs, she has a gun. She knows how to use it. She shoots him, and he's dead. Um, she had a concealed ca- weapons permit. I don't think she would have needed this since she was home, but she had a concealed weapons permit. She could legally own a gun. No relationship with the guy. This is just an escaped prisoner who broke into her house. All right, so the sheriff has a press conference to describe this. At this point in time, he says, this woman, he calls the homeowner a hero. And he emphasized the need for people, especially women, to get concealed weapons permits. This is what he says. He said, this is a shining example of what this lady did. Took the time to get her concealed weapons permit, set herself up to be able to protect herself and not be harmed, killed, raped or whatever. She came out on the good on the good end of this. And the other guy, the bad guy, he didn't. Um, this is a, is a big guy. If she hadn't had a weapon, no telling what would have happened, but she stopped the crime. She solved the crime for us and she came out the winner. All right. So that's, that's what he says. Hey, this lady should be a hero. She had the gun permit. She knew how to use it. She used it. The bad guy is dead. She's the good guy. She comes out a winner. Well, as soon as he says this, as you might expect, Heads explode across the mainstream media. What do you mean? You're endorsing vigilantism. How can you possibly say something like this? I mean, you're getting into the good guy with the gun debate. I mean, my goodness, how could you say that you you are are proud of her? How could you say you think that she should be an inspiration for other people? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The sheriff is taking heat for his comments, and some people are suggesting he should apologize because what he was saying was irresponsible, could lead to people getting hurt, could lead to vigilantism. Does the sheriff have anything to apologize for? 414-799-1620, that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. What do you think? Guy escaped prisoner, breaks into this woman's house, 3 o'clock in the morning, she shoots him dead, and the sheriff says, essentially, you go, girl. More people should consider doing this so they're able to protect themselves. Should he be apologizing for anything? We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line, and I will share my thoughts on this in just a moment as well. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, here's the story. About 2.30 in the morning, Monday night, Tuesday morning, this uh, community in South Carolina Two inmates overpower a couple guards. They escape. One is caught quickly. The other guy, with a lengthy criminal record, breaks into a woman's house, breaks into a house in the middle of the night. This is about 3 o'clock in the morning. Grabs what they're describing as a weapon, kind of like a a tool sharpener. Starts going up the stairs. The lady is now retreated. She's by herself in her home. She's up in her bedroom. They haven't released her identifying information, so I don't know her age. She's got a gun, and she knows how to use it. Guy approaching and she pulls out the gun, she shoots him one shot, it's a headshot, he's dead. The sheriff then has a press conference where he essentially calls the lady a hero, says this is it's a shining example of what she did. She took time to get her concealed weapons permit. She learned how to use the gun. She set herself up to protect herself and not be harmed, killed, raped, or whatever. She came out on the good end of this. The other guy, the bad guy, didn't. And the sheriff is taking all sorts of heat. Oh, you're encouraging vigilantism. How could you suggest that, you know, what she did here was the right thing to do? Do you want people actually getting guns and knowing how to use them? To which my response would be, yeah, because the bottom line is, who knows what this escaped convict would have done to this lady at 3 o'clock in the morning if she didn't have a gun. That's just the reality. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Vicky and Kiel. Vicki, you're on WTMJ. Hi there. Hi, Vicki.
1: Hey, I think uh, it all worked out good, good. Win-win in both situations. Well, I mean, it's... She was able able to take care of herself, and that was the main concern.
0: Well, exactly, this idea of vigilantism. Vigilantes aren't people that aren't people that shoot escaped convicts who are breaking into their home at three o'clock in the morning and coming up and you know getting ready to force their way into their bedrooms that's not what a vigilante is that's somebody no, who's there to I protect absolutely. themselves
1: exactly those are the hoodlums on the streets that we got to protect ourselves from
0: right so you hear this story and you think you go girl huh <laughs>
1: You bet! Yeah. I'd never do it
0: again. No, thank, well, thanks for calling. I mean, I guess that—that's what I look at too. I mean, when, when I hear this term like vigilante and stuff like that thrown around, or how can you encourage gun ownership? This is this is one of the reasons why individual citizens, I think, should consider the private ownership of firearms. Now, look, if I've always believed this, if you're going to make the decision to own a gun, number one, you should learn how to use it. I mean, that's. That's number one. And number two, you should make sure that you are psychologically able and prepared to do that. I mean, the worst thing in the world is to have a gun and Either not know how to use it, or when a moment comes like this, you freeze, you can't do what you need to do, and then you end up getting disarmed, and then the bad guy ends up having the gun. And that's not for everybody. And believe me, I understand that. But in a situation like this where you're saying, hey, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, I don't know it's an escaped convict, but all I know is it's some guy that's just kicked in my back door and is coming up the stairways in an orange jumpsuit armed with a sharp object. I mean, I don't know. Anybody out there feel sorry for the escaped criminal? I'm glad this lady had a gun, and I'm darn glad that she knew how to use it. Tom in Heartland. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Yes, hello. Hi, Tom. Um, I, uh, with, with almost no exception, this was a clear-cut case of what should happen. Um, if, you, if the question is, does the police officer have anything to apologize for, no. Um, in fact, we need more people to point out when things like this go right instead of just saying when things go wrong. The only one who would have a problem with the way this went down was someone who will never, ever come on the side of someone being to protect themselves. It's the only one who ever would have a problem with this is someone who already has agenda against guns. So right. this is a textbook
0: example. Well, right, or or the people that are hand-wringing out there, oh, well, 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 this is terrible, you know, you're going to have somebody who's going to end up misusing the firearms. Well, okay, that's a separate debate. In this particular case, like you say, this is a textbook example. This is the compelling reason why, People, I I think, if they feel comfortable, within the different caveats that I was throwing out, you feel comfortable, I'm glad this lady had a gun, because God knows what would have happened to her if she didn't have a gun Tuesday night and wasn't able to use it. I mean, that's just the reality.
2: Exactly. The only way that uh, I didn't hear the actual statement that Dostor made, the only way he could have uh, said anything different is, well, you know, of course, we never want anyone to be shot and killed, However, I mean, if, as long as he tried to temperament it mm. and didn't say everyone should go out and get your guns, I think it's fine.
0: Right. No, thank, thanks. for the call. Well, what he said was the, the the escaped convict was a big guy. If she hadn't had a weapon, no telling what would have happened. But she stopped the crime. She solved the crime for us. And she came out a winner. <laughs> well, uh, all right. Well, is, is that insensitive because the escaped convict who broke into her house at 3 a.m. and had the, the sharp object that was coming up the bedroom? Is that insensitive because he's dead? well, all, all right, may, maybe a little bit, but you know what? If the choice is the escaped convict assaulting and killing this woman or the escaped convict being dead because he chose to broke, break into the house at 3 o'clock in the morning, I, I'm, I'm going on the side of the lady. Can I see a show of hands? Everybody with me on that particular one? And the hand ring, oh, well, this is encouraging people to take the law into their own hands. No, it, it goes back to what former Sheriff David Clark said, and I understand that he was controversial, but when, when Clark said, look, there, there is a limit to what police authorities can do right they're they're, they're just the reality even if this lady had the forethought to call 911 all right it's not like Star Trek where you jump into the transporters and the police are immediately there a lot of stuff could have happened in that 5 or 10 or 15 minutes that it's going to take the police to arrive a lot of bad stuff could have happened and this lady stopped it and she ended up defending herself Let's talk to Joel and Madison. Joel, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Hey, Jeff. Love the show. Thank you, sir. Hey, uh, a couple of points and then a quick question. So, first point, no, the sheriff or the chief of police does not need to apologize. I mean, these, the people that are offended by his comments, I mean, they're the perpetually offended. They're going to get offended <laughs> by anything. Right. And, and two, you know, really what it boils down to, really the only legitimate right that we all have as humans is our right to life. And that includes, and that means that you have the right to defend yourself. And mm-hmm. sometimes you need to put the law into your own hands because the police are not there 24-7. And then my quick question is, you know, the, the people that are outraged by the comments, you know, they they, they project their outrage. But then they never, at, you know, they never answer the question of, well, what would you rather have her do? Right. If you you don't want her to defend herself, I mean, with with her handgun, which she's legally and lawfully able to do, what would you rather have
0: her do in that situation? Well, well and, and, exactly.
2: You'll never answer that
0: question. Right, exactly. Thanks, because there's no good answer. Oh, What's she supposed to do? So she barricades herself in the bedroom. The guy tries to force himself in or whatever. She jumps out of a second story window. No, you don't have to do that. I mean, the guy in this particular case, the convicted, uh, the prisoner, escaped prisoner, was in the wrong place. He was the one that was responsible for this. This is not vigilantism. This is a classic example of, you know, Again, self-defense. And, and it is. I mean, there is a cautionary note out here. And I think I, I applaud what the sheriff said when he said, look, she did this right. She got her weapons permit. She knew how to use the gun. And that's I do think that that is a, a fair thing. If I were to have any beef with some of the concealed carry laws that are out there, including the one in Wisconsin, it would be that you could get the permit without any training necessarily as to how to use the gun. Now, I don't know that there's people out there that get the gun and don't don't practice shooting it. But, I mean, I, I do think if you're going to carry a gun or you're going to have a gun by a nightstand or something like that, you should know how to use it. This lady did. And, well, quite candidly, all's well that ends well. And I don't think the sheriff said anything wrong at all. To 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There is a tendency in our listening area to want to think that, well, crime doesn't happen in the suburbs. It's just it's, just, it's a problem in the city of Milwaukee. And I don't live in the city of Milwaukee, so why should I be worried? Well, the answer is uh, crime Has been spreading throughout the suburbs. I mean, yesterday we talked about the story in Greendale Greenfield, um, involving, I think, Greenfield, the the porch pirate the guy who was caught with 175 packages in his apartment that he had apparently, I mean, what he was doing is he'd drive around the the area and he'd find, you know, packages that had been delivered by UPS or Federal Express or whatever, and he'd go up to people's porches and he'd rip them off. The guy was undeterred. I mean, a lot of people have those cameras on their porches now, so the police had a pretty good description of him. Ultimately, they find the car and they catch him with at least 175 stolen packages. I mean, so, and this is, of course, the time of year for that to happen. I mean, here's another story for people who think, well, no, no crime around. Eric Bilsett left, but he's, he's a resident of Menominee Falls. Um, huge problem in Menominee Falls with people apparently stealing cars, stealing not cars, stealing stuff from cars. Here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it: Several Menominee Falls residents have had items stolen from their unlocked cars in the past few weeks while they were at home, according to police reports. And in all these different cases, the cars were in people's driveways, but they were unlocked. And it goes through reporting how one guy apparently had um, left his car, parked in his driveway overnight, neglected to lock it. Somebody came in and stole about $3,000 worth of personal items that were taken from the, the vehicle. And then they go on with story after story of people who've noticed that Again, their cars parked in their driveways but not locked have had people come in and they've gone through the glove compartments or, you know, whatever, stolen pretty much anything that they can find. And the Menominee Falls police don't, don't have a clue as to who's doing this. Now, I guess what really catches my attention about this is the brazenness of this criminal activity, because this these aren't cars that are parked in the street. I mean, these are people who are walking up your driveway and apparently then open it, trying to see if your car door is unlocked or not. Now, I guess maybe some of the, the older model cars, you know, you can maybe tell because there's a button up there. But for example, in my car, the, the only way you can tell if it's locked or unlocked is if you go and you try to pull up the, you know, open the thing up. So you have people that are brazen enough that they are walking from driveway to driveway in Menominee Falls, and they're apparently trying people's cars to see if the doors are locked or unlocked, and the police are, I guess, appropriately saying, well, that means if you're going to leave your car, you should leave your car, you know, locked, and I, that, that's not bad advice but whenever i hear this it's like wow you know the criminals have gotten so brazen now that in areas that we would t- typically consider to be safe folks are are just they feel comfortable enough to be walking up you know people's driveways to to get access to cars and you know if these cars were broken into you know that there were probably 50 100 150 more cars that the the thieves tried to see if they were unlocked in the first place but instead they were locked so the bottom line is again you've got this crime that is spreading throughout the suburbs brazen criminals and number 1 you got to protect yourself but number 2 again i raise this question of when is enough going to be enough and when are decent tax paying law abiding citizens going to say you know we're sick of this stuff and yeah you're right we should leave our cars locked but you know what we shouldn't have to leave our cars locked let's let's deal with the criminal element that is out there, and when we catch them, don't tell me about mass incarceration. Tell me about putting them in prison to protect ourselves. All right, let us switch gears. The, the big story that you're going to hear, probably leading off many of our newscasts and certainly on television tonight, is the latest plan with regard to Grand Avenue. Grand Avenue is, of course, the the shops on Wisconsin Avenue Um immediately to the west of the Milwaukee River. Now, it pains me to admit this, but I am old enough to remember when Grand Avenue opened. Matter of fact, Grand Avenue opened right as I was starting my career practicing law. So, I mean, I, I worked at the old federal building, not the blue monstrosity right across the street, but the old federal building on like, uh, 500 East Wisconsin Avenue. But I remember when the shops at Grand Avenue first opened up in 1982. And it, it was, it was a big deal. You had it, you had Boston Store, which was the anchor on the north. You had, uh, Gimbals, which was the anchor on, I'm, sorry, Boston Store was the anchor on the west. Gimbels was the um, anchor on the east, and then you had Skyways that connected them, and you had a lot of you had a lot of shops that were there, a lot of different stores that were there, and you had a giant food court. I mean, it was it was a happening place. I mean, I can remember particularly during the summer, where even you know working at the old Federal Building, five seventeen East Wisconsin Avenue, you know, a lot of times if we had a little bit of time, we would you would walk down, you'd walk down, you'd cross uh, Water Street, you'd. Go over the the bridge there on Wisconsin Avenue. You'd go into Gimbels, and you go up to Grand Avenue. You'd walk up. They had a food court that was absolutely thriving. Maybe you'd do a little bit of shopping, etc., etc. Well, that was 1982. Things were fine for a few years, and then, for a variety of reasons. Started going downhill. You had the, the anchor stores, Gimbals became what, Marshall Fields, and then Marshall Fields ended up closing, and then of course everybody knows what's going on with Boston Store, and essentially Grand Avenue became a, a ghost town. Now, it's not good to have, if Wisconsin Avenue is your main drag, it's not good to have a seven or eight block ghost town on, you know, the main part of your main drag. So, there, there's been, proposal after proposal after proposal really over the better part of the last 20 years to try to revitalize Grand Avenue I mean I can remember when the idea was well here what we're going to do is we're going to uh, we're going to use it for you know educational things etc etc and and idea after idea after idea has been floated typically with much fanfare and it's never gone anywhere and, and Grand Avenue continues to be struggling. So the latest plan that is out there, and it's accompanied by – I mean, here's what they're saying. Um, and Steve Scafidi had the guy who runs um, Grafe Manufacturing. They're, they're going to move their company down there from um, the Honey Creek on the uh, west side. They're going to lease 3,500 square feet kind of up by where the food court is now. There's not much left of the food court, but whatever there is, is going to be closing. On the second floor – of Grand Avenue, they're gonna turn it into apartments. And then the plan is on the first floor, they're going to turn it into what they call a food hall. Now, a food hall is not a food court. Um, there, There is a difference. I mean, a food court is where you have, uh, I mean, a number of like fast food chains. A food hall is something, it's a fancy name, that it's designed to showcase local restaurants, taverns, and stands selling craft foods and drinks. So what apparently they're going to do is they're going to have a big bar, and then they're going to have vendors arranged around that big bar. They're also going to have a separate beer hall in the former Applebee's restaurant that's next to the main entrance. That's been more restaurants than I can you know keep track of. But they're going to turn that into a beer hall. So the idea is we're going to have apartments That will cause people to come down here and flock down here. We're going to have a manufacturing company that has like 180 employees on the top level. And then we're going to have this food hall, and we're going to turn it into a destination. That is the plan, and it's being greeted with lots of fanfare today, just like – Many of the other plans to resurrect Grand Avenue have been greeted with fanfare when they were rolled out. Now, what they say might make this one go more is that, well, you've got the, the Bucks Arena and you've got the outside of FISER Forum. You've got that whole area and you've got, you know, shops that are locating down there. So, you know, maybe the fact that this is four or five, six blocks away or whatever it is, you're going to have this kind of critical mass. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acinet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, anybody, I think, should, should hope that this succeeds because to have, uh, again, to have a Grand Avenue be what has been kind of like the moonscape that that has been for a number of years, that's not good for the city. The question, though, is realistically, is this a workable plan? Given all the other development and the attractions, is this going to be something that can compete, for example, with that whole area around FISER Forum? Are people going to want to live there? Are people want, are going to want to eat there? Will this work, or is this more pie in the sky? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. And is this a superior alternative to retail, which is what it was? If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss next. 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I hope it works. Color me a little bit skeptical, though. We discuss in just a minute. 1248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. See, my biggest concern about this, and, and if it works, that, that's great. I just wonder... How many entertainment destinations can you have in the city of Milwaukee in, in that narrow area? You know, one of the things, and I've said this before, one of the indicators as to whether the Bucks Arena, Pfizer Forum, is going to be worth a $250 million commitment from taxpayers is whether or not you have that, that growth that, you know, we, we all hope happens, you know, immediately around the, the facility. And I, I, guess, I guess, I mean, I, I think that's a potential there. I love what I see so far, but we're not going to know that for a while. So I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, seriously, when I hear this, all right, how how much, how big of an entertainment district can you have? If you're going to have stores and bars and restaurants and things like that outside the Forum, and you're going to have the stuff on Third Street, and you're going to have the development up by the Paps nearer to Fiser Forum, all right, is there really... Is there enough interest? Are there enough people that are going to be able to make something like Grand Avenue go without, for example, killing like the Milwaukee Public Market, which isn't that far? I mean, are we going to be cannibalizing things? Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike here on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Yeah. Hey. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, my, my thoughts are: well, there's enough entertainment stuff going on down there now. I understand that uh, Graph Engineering just moved their or is going to move their headquarters to the Grand Avenue. I think anything that moves downtown, uh, aside from retail and entertainment, we have enough down there right now. But any other development, the downtown areas are like the heart of a city. If you uh, lose downtown, you kind of lose the city. And yeah. And I'm all for them moving on.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, th- well, I mean you, you need to do something. Because like I say, I mean, it's been... If we were going to be charitable, we would say it has been an underused asset for the last couple decades. If we were to be honest, we would say that it's been a complete and total wasteland, you know, for the last, you know, couple decades. So, and they've tried different ideas that haven't worked. Retail clearly isn't going to work. That's just the reality. Now, I mean, can you can you throw in in that area where they're talking about having the uh, again? And we don't use the word food court; it's a food hall. They say it's not a food court, but can can you have some stores and stuff in that area? Well, well, maybe. But as a retail destination, I think we've recognized that that's just not going to work. I guess I guess if you are able to have. To really make the apartments go, I mean, to really have a lot of people living in that immediate area, maybe they might be inclined to, to walk there. As far as turning this into a destination, though, gee, we're going to drive down there. I, I'm not – candidly, I just don't see it. Now, maybe this is going to be the greatest thing in the world, but I guess – I mean – Right now, I think the hot development is the whole area around Fiserv Forum. I would hate to see anything like this cannibalize that. If private developers want to try to make it work, well, go with God. I'm just a little bit skeptical. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ.
2: Hey, Jeff. I think they need to get some stuff in there that might be a little more recreational than just eating. Like, for example, uh, we talked about, like, video games and pinball machines, they could get them in there, or they could get like an ice cream or an ice skating rink, like Major Mall, or get some big screen TVs that would like make it cool to like go and watch like ball games, you know, stuff like that. Because someone will just go to one restaurant, they'll spend a little bit of time there, and then they're just, just going to leave if they don't get other stuff in
0: there. So you think that they have to, that there has to be something other than just the the food hall aspect of it to attract and to bring people down there.
2: Very much. And for the people that want to live there, it has to be a practical and convenient place to live. Like they they, would want to get like a supermarket and like other stuff in there that wouldn't make living there a big pain. You know what?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that again, that's the you know, that's the issue. People want to live downtown. And I guess depending and, and you, you have seen that. I mean, I, I understand that. You've got empty nesters that, that move downtown because they like to be within walking distance of a lot of the stuff that's going on. And you have this whole trend where you've got, you know, the millennials before they start the families. Hey, let, let's let's move down. Let's, you know, live around all these activities. And there are a lot of thriving areas. Um, I, I hope this isn't a bridge too far. And don't get me wrong here. I, I hope it ends up working. I mean, it sounds like it's something different. It This to me is better. Then some of the warmed over ideas of let's try to make it a a retail outlet where we've got a couple of these other things that that just hasn't worked. I mean, that has not worked. And I think that's time has passed. I just I wonder if we have the population density around here to make something like that work. Without at the same time killing the public market or killing the development around Five Surf Forum or killing the development, um, a little bit to the north on Third Street. I mean, that's, that's where the concerns are. But as somebody who remembers what Grand Avenue was in its heyday, you'd like to see them come up with something that, that again can bring that back a little bit. But will it work? Time will tell. I am skeptical. But I hope the people that are putting up the money know what they're doing. And wouldn't it be great to have that be a success for the next 10 or 15 years? Not sure it's going to be the case, but you got to wish them luck. 1254 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. What's at the root cause of the issues in Titletown? One former Packers player and a future Hall of Famer suggests it has to do with some team philosophies. Is he correct? Greg Matzik and Jeff Falconio debate tonight on Miller Lite's Packers Playbook. Tune in at 6.07. I hate to say I told you so. Actually, I don't hate to say I told you so. But this is one that I told you so. We have talked a couple times over the years about ESPN TV and how the, the ratings have been challenge i mean it used to be that espn on television was a license to print money that that it was the thing that attracted everybody to want to subscribe to different you know cable or satellite providers and and of course that the highlight on espn was always sports center in addition to the the programming well more and more cable operators have been saying hey we don't want to pay we don't want to pay what espn charges us in addition um, they, so ESPN has been kind of struggling for a while. What they did is they made this decision that all right, let's get away from our basics. Let's let's not worry so much about showing highlights and things like that. Because nowadays, if you want to see you know who scored a goal in a soccer match, you don't have to wait for Sports Center at ten o'clock. What you can do is you can just you know dial it up on, on your phone, and you can end up seeing it. So let's move away from that, and let's go to personalities. So for the last couple of years, ESPN has had personalities, and some of the personalities have been very, very political, as we've talked about, and created some controversies. And along with moving away from their basics, what they saw is their ratings went down. Well, interesting story in the Washington Post yesterday about how over the last few months, it's been a subtle change, but ESPN has been returning to their roots the guy that does the programming he says look here here's the deal um i think that we we miscalculated a little bit and and we moved away from what it was that we did really well and now we're moving back and he says hey if you look If you watch SportsCenter, you're going to see less of the cutesy stuff and you're going to see more of the highlights, the stuff that people tune into, more of the interviews with the athletes and things like that. They said it's a subtle change, but they claim that they've been doing it and they also claim that they it's been working and that the numbers are starting to reverse themselves, to which I say no surprise. I've been saying that for a couple of years. 1259, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Mike, do you know how you can tell if somebody went to Harvard or not? Is it because they say they went to Harvard? Wait five minutes, and they will tell you they went to Harvard. A- absolutely. That that's there, There's no question about it. It'd be like you could be talking to somebody, and you can say, Boy, this bar on the corner makes a really great Bloody Mary. And they'll say, Yeah, it makes a great Bloody Mary, but... When I was at Mass Hall at Harvard my freshman year, there was a bar two blocks away. It it doesn't matter. They will find. Within five minutes, they will find a way to sneak in the fact that they they went to Harvard. Boy, there's a great cheeseburger at this new restaurant downtown. Yeah, it is a good cheeseburger. But when, when I when I was at Gray's, when I was stayed at Gray's dorm at, at, at Harvard my first year, boy, there was a place. I still think about those cheeseburgers they used to make. You Yes, you exactly. You, you wait a couple minutes. I was thinking about this because th- this is this is typical. This is a typically Harvard thing. There's a guy named Eric Rim who is a professor at Harvard University's Departments of appendicit- um, Nutrition. <laughs> it just, he's, he's a nutritionist is, is where he is. And so he, he comes out, he's doing these interviews, and he's come out with a study, and he has, he has correctly said that we as Americans, well, we, we have unhealthy eating habits, and it leads to obesity and all those types of things. And that's, that's not a revelation. You, you don't need a Harvard degree for that. But he's got, he's got a suggestion, and so perhaps this is what you need a Harvard degree for. He says, okay, one of the problems we have is that we in America we are we are too much in love with our french fries. And we we love french fries and it's true we french fries are good. You know, potatoes in general are not good for you. All right? And and french fries they're 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 kind of bad for you. I mean, a lot of nutritionists will tell you that. So, his solution, now this is what you have got to be a professor at Harvard for to come up. This is his solution to all right, you know, French fries are, are bad. He says, it's portion control. All right, so, you know, the, the idea, I, I kind of get that, you know, and anything in moderation. But here's what here's what he says, and he tells the New York Times, of course. He says, well, here's what I'd like to see. I think when you order a meal, it would be nice if it came with a side salad and about six French fries. Six French fries. Now, Gru, I don't know about you. I can eat six French fries in one bite. I mean, it's just really six French fries. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine if I, I'm sitting there and I order that cheeseburger, which I probably shouldn't have in the first place, and, and they bring it with six French fries. I, I know my response is going to be, you know, to the waiter or the waitress, the server. It's going to be, did you eat this stuff on the way over here? What do you mean, six French fries? I, see, this is one of my one of my beefs with nutritionists, and and we have we have people on our air from time to time who will who'll come out with these ideas, and I I get the whole concept of portion control, I, I do, I, I understand that, but at the same time, there is this real world, and I don't think it's healthy. For people to come out with the – I don't think it's practical. I don't think it's it's really healthy and from the perspective of being constructive to sit and say, all right, we, we, yes, do we think you should eat responsibly? Yeah, I, absolutely. Do we think you should make healthy choices? Absolutely. Should you have French fries, you know, three times a day and should you eat hundreds of French fries a day? Well, of course not. But to say, well, here, just, just limit yourself to six French fries. Come on, who's going to limit themselves to six French fries? That's like saying, have two potato chips. Who's going to just have two potato chips, for goodness sakes? Say, okay, have a side salad as well. I've got no problems with that. I'm all in favor of eating healthy. Although, I will tell you, my wife, um, because she knows I like French fries and she knows I'm not supposed to have, like, really greasy French fries and stuff, we got this cooker, and it's a way it, it, it makes French fries without oil, and they're crispy. It's just, I forget what it's called, but we we got it um, just a couple weeks ago. She's made French fries a couple times, and it, it's really good. But I will tell you, seriously, if she went through this trouble and you're making dinner and she put six French fries in front of me, I would say, are you kidding? Now, she could say, well, I didn't go to Harvard, but I'm listening to what the Harvard nutrition guy says, to which I'd say, give me my French fries. Six French fries. Come on. I mean, Can you imagine you pull up through the McDonald's drive through you go there, you, you, you get your cheeseburger, you're reaching into your bag because you're going to eat some french fries on the way home, and there's six of them there. I mean, really, you're going back through that drive through and you're saying, give me what I want. All right, let us switch gears. This is, to me, a really, really interesting story. It's working its way through the court system, but, but I want to talk about the, the bigger concept. If you are, if you are a fan, let, let's say you're a season ticket holder at a s for a sports team what happens is a lot of times as a way of thanking you for your support or encouraging you to you know buy tickets what the teams will do is they will give you particular perks for example um, my my very close friend and I we, we share a 20 pack of season tickets to the uh, Brewers games all right just just renewed those and so what they do is they have a series of they have some special perks that you get if you are a season ticket holder. And the perks get better and better Based on you know how how long you've been a season ticket holder and how many tickets you have, for example, if somebody has a twenty game pack. I don't get as good of perks as somebody that's got a, a, a regular season, you know, for for all eighty one games. And I get it; it's just but, but they're nice little things. And the perks range from I don't know autograph pictures to meet and greets to just special access and things like that. Again, it, it just varies on what you on what you want. All right, and that's not unusual for teams to do that. The Bears. The Bears, the Chicago Bears have a similar sort of program and that you get points based on how long you've been a season ticket holder and how many season tickets you have. And you accumulate points and then you cash those points in. It's like a rewards thing for very, very cool perks. Well, there is this one guy um, who is out there. His name is Russell Beckman and Beckman is a Packers fan. He lives in, he lives in Green Bay and he goes to the Packers games on a regular basis. He also, he is a, a season ticket holder for the Bears. He's been a Bears season ticket holder for years and he has like four or five season seats. Now he, he's a Packers fan, not a Bears fan, but you know, he has these seats. What he typically does. Is for most games he sells his Bears tickets. He I mean, has not. he got no interest in the Bears. But for the Packers games, when the Packers play at the Bears, like they do in two weeks, you know he he goes down there with his family, and when he goes, he's a Packers fan. He decks himself out in green and gold. I mean th- this guy, you know, face painting sometimes, and the the Favre, jer- uh, the Favre, the the Rogers jersey, and the green and gold beads. I mean, he goes down dressed as as a as a full blown Packers fan. Well, here's the deal. The Bears have, as part of their promotions, you know, season ticket holders is one of their perks. They get loyalty perks for fan experiences. And one of the perks is that you can cash your points in and it gives you access to stand on the sidelines during pregame warmups. You don't get to stand on the sidelines during the game. My producer, grew is seeing where this is going. But you you get access to the sidelines during the pregame thing. All right, so here's what happens. 2016. 2 years ago, Packers or Bears are playing. He has he's cashed in his reward points and he wants to go down and he wants to stand on the sidelines. So he goes, he shows up and he's fully decked out in all his Packers gear. I mean, he he's just like a roving billboard for the Green Bay Packers. And he goes up and he says, "Here, I'm I'm here." Here, I'm a Bears season ticket holder. I'm cashing in my points. Here, I want to stand on the sidelines. And the Bears say, no, no, you, you, you can't, you know, we're not going to let you onto our sideline dressed like that. Sorry. And he says, well, wait a second. I, I, I should be able to wear what I want because here, I, I mean, I, I'm a season ticket holder. This is how I do it. How dare you tell me that I can't wear what I want? And they say, look, we, we, we're the Bears. We have a right to kind of make the rules, and our rule is: we've decided we're not going to let you on the field pregame um, wearing Packers stuff. We just don't think that that's right. This is a, something for the Bears fans. Sorry, if you want to come back and not and wear Bears clothing or you know wear neutral clothing, that's fine. But we're not going to let you walk the sidelines dressed like the Packers. Period. So they say no. He has now talk about making this a federal case, he has now filed a lawsuit alleging that his constitutional rights are being violated. He says, first of all, uh, he said, first of all, the, the, while the Bears are a private organization, Soldier Field is owned by the Chicago Park District, and it's a public facility, and stopping him from wearing what he wants on the sidelines infringes on his First Amendment rights. He says this is viewpoint discrimination. He has now filed a lawsuit trying to get the Bears, to, to him to be allowed to wear Packers regalia on the on the sidelines. Now, this is interesting because the, the case is working its way through its courts, the court system. His attorneys are back in court because the game is coming up in two weeks. Saying, "Hey, we want an injunction. We want him to be allowed to show up wearing his Packers clothing on the sidelines." All right, four one That one six twenty. That is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. All right, does the guy have a, a point? The Bears say. All right, season ticket holders get certain points and you can trade in these points for perks. One of the perks is you can stand on the sideline during pregames. Guy shows up dressed as you know, dressed in all his Packers gear, and they say, Sorry, you know, we're we're not we're not gonna let you show up dressed like the Packers. That's gonna be embarrassing to our fans, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So no, you can't come in dressed like that. You can come in, but you have to change your clothes. He says, Oh, I don't want to do that. All right. Should the bears be able to control what people wear when they're exercising this perk? What do you think? Let's not worry about what the law says and whether it's viewpoint discrimination or whatever. And and think about it. Maybe from a different perspective, what if the situation was reversed and this was a Bears fan, for example, who wanted to do what this guy did? He's got season tickets Lambeau Field. He's cashing him in for his perks in for a sideline adventure, and he wants to stand on the sideline dressed in his Jim McMahon jersey. Should the Packers be required to let him do that? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a minute. 121, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 124, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So you have this Packers fan. Guy lives in Green Bay, goes to all the Green Bay games. For years and years and years, he's had season tickets to the Bears in Soldier Field. He, he doesn't go to Bears games as a general rule. He sells those tickets. But he does go to the Packers-Bears game, like the one coming up in two weeks. Um, what he wants to do is they have perks. And one of the things you can do is you can one of the perks you get as a season ticket holder is you accumulate points. And one of the experiences that you can sign up for is to be on the sidelines. So two years ago, he goes down there. He's dressed in all his Packers gear, goes onto to the sidelines pregame. And they say, nope, you can't come on here dressed as a Green Bay Packer. And now he's suing. He's saying, hey, this is content discrimination. I should be able to, if I want to dress like a Packer and walk up and down the Bears sideline pregame, I should be able to do that. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Let's see on the text lines. Ron says, Jeff, it's a privilege, not a right. And the Bears have every right to ask him to change. Here's another text. I 100% agree with the Bears on this. It would be a slap in the face to allow him to do that, not only to the team, but also to the players and their fans. Um, all right. Now, flip side is, Jeff, this is no different than two guys sitting behind home plate during the Brewers' playoff game against the Rockies on national TV. One guy was wearing a Broncos jersey. The other had on a Rockies jersey. Should the Brewers have been able to require them to change? Another text: The Chicago Park District may own the property, but the Chicago Bears are leasing it, and for that game, it is their property. Therefore, they get to set the rules. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Should he have an absolute right? Should it be illegal for the Bears to stop him from doing this? And while Gru is lining up the calls, I see. To me. To me, that is the key. I got to be honest with you. I think it is petty, in the extreme, on the part of the Chicago Bears, for example, to try to tell the guy what he can and can't wear. I mean, I who cares? I mean, seriously, you know who cares? The guy's a season ticket holder. If he wants to, it's not like. He's wearing a t shirt that is that has some offensive saying or something like that. I mean I understand if he was going to show up on the sidelines, you know, with a big obscenity or something on his t shirt. That 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 might be a different story. So I think they're being incredibly petty in telling him not to do this. Now that at the same time though, doesn't mean that they don't have a right to do it. And I mean I do think, you know, whether it's The Bears or the Brewers or the Packers or whatever, I I do think they have the right to set certain guidelines with regard, for example, to to apparel. Should they should they let this guy on the sidelines? My answer would be yes. Can they legally prevent him from being on the sidelines? Maybe. But at the same time, my advice to the Bears would be, hey, just, just suck it up, buttercups. Let the guy walk up and down the sidelines. 414-799-1620. They might be able to legally block him. I take no position on that. But I don't know. I guess I, I he's a season ticket holder. He's paid this money. You know, what, what do you care? Are you so challenged by the fact that he might show up dressed in an Aaron Rodgers jersey? Al on the north side. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
1: Yes, good afternoon. Uh, You're you're exactly right. See, you can't start dictating what a person is to wear. Now, as long as it's within the guidelines and he hasn't broken any rule and also as long as they haven't, before the issue was, you, you know, done, told you ahead of time and gave specific restrictions... What you can't do, they can't change the game plan after the fact, you know. They can't change the rules of the game.
0: Well, I'm mean, and, and trying to think of it like, okay, so like like I say, I I, I have a partial season ticket to the Brewers, and so they, they invite you to tailgate parties or something like this. Mm-hmm. If I show up where – I wouldn't do this, but if I show up wearing a Cubs jersey, are they mm-hmm. not going to let me in? Really? Or manners. <laughs> yeah. Or,
1: or right. manners. Let's say you're a crazy Cardinals fan <laughs> and because of how they feel. So what? We can't start telling people what to wear to a ball game unless it's something that's inappropriate. Right. That most times you wouldn't be able to because there's different people who have different teams that they like to just you know they like their apparel and they like to wear it. And we can't get to where we say, well, if you're coming to a Packers game, you better make sure you wear. A you might want to wear a Cowboys jersey well, well, and exactly. we came up here
0: together. Exactly. No, thanks for the call out. I mean, that's how I look at this too. And again, I don't know how. I don't know how it's going to come down legally, and and maybe ultimately at the end of the day the Bears are going to have the right to say no, but I don't think so. Jim in Green Bay. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Jim.
2: Um, The the guy might legally have the right, and, and I don't, you know, I'm not here to debate that, but common sense says no. You know, even if you're a Packer fan, hey, Go and wear something neutral. Just wear a, a regular shirt, uh, whatever. Well, he's
0: trying to make a point. There's no doubt about that.
2: <laughs> well, I, I guess what I'm looking at is that, okay, he makes his point, and then the Bears say, all right, we're not going to tolerate this at all. So then they take away the rights to everybody. Okay, yeah. there's no more perks. There's no more perks. So this one guy may prove his point and say, ah, I showed them. Well, no, no, now you just penalized everybody else because the Bears take that perk away.
0: Yeah, and I mean that's always. The, I mean, thanks to call. That's always the risk you run. I guess at the same time, to me, do the Bears really care? I mean, so you, so you bring a bunch of people onto the sidelines, and some guys dressed like a Packer fanatic. What does that mean? Is the team not going to play that well? I mean, I I think this is one where actually the Bears made this worse by by simply trying to tell the guy no. Whereas if they had just let it go, nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have cared. It's one thirty. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 137, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As we continue to honor the life of President George H.W. Bush, we take a look at his legacy and a position he held before he was the Commander-in-Chief, Vice President under Ronald Reagan. Melissa Barkley explores that at 4.30 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Yeah, as I have said, I had the um, privilege to meet President Bush twice, um, once when he was vice president, and then once he he was president, I heard him speak a couple times. But I mean, actually be in a room with him and talk to him for a few minutes, and just a really classy guy. All right, so Grooves producing the show today and always. You know what the, this weekend is? I mean, what the, the big the big event is? It is something that a lot of people in the state wait all year for. You are looking at me blankly. You have no idea. Wisconsin plays Marquette. It, it's the and you just shrug your shoulders. You have no idea. Ah. I have to work on my producer's education. All right. Um, Wisconsin, four o'clock on Saturday. Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Badgers play the Marquette Golden Eagles. I call them the Warriors, but they're the Golden Eagles. It was, I bring this up because, of course, uh, the Pfizer Forum will be absolutely packed. It's, It's one of the most enjoyable experiences as far as just, you know, people being wired and just, I mean, the place is going to be packed and people are going to be screaming. There's going to be Wisconsin fans and there's going to be Marquette fans. And I'm very much looking forward to this thing. But for people who want a little bit of history and want to understand that this rivalry, there is a great story. It's, It's just posted on JS online. It is one of the iconic Wisconsin sports photos and and you can see it. It's up at JS Online now. It, it goes back to it, it goes back to nineteen nineteen seventy four. Now the way it used to be is Marquette and Wisconsin used to play each other as a practical matter twice a year. What would happen is, is, as long as I can remember, they, they've always they played one game against each other. Um, and and it's been one year. It's in Madison. The next year, it's in Milwaukee. And it's always been that way. But for years and years and years, both teams also played. It's something they called the Milwaukee Classic, and that was I, I seem to remember it being the the week between Christmas and New Year's. And what would happen is they they take Wisconsin and Marquette, and they they'd each be in a separate bracket. And they'd bring in two other teams, generally kind of spud teams, and Marquette would beat their team and Wisconsin would beat their team. And so they'd meet in the championship game. So they effectively played two times a year. Well, what happened is, and I understand this, Wisconsin uh, really didn't want to do that because effectively they were always playing in Marquette. In, they were always playing at Marquette in Milwaukee, you know, um, and sometimes they'd have to play in Milwaukee then then twice. And so ultimately they backed out, then the Milwaukee Classic kind of fell apart. And so now you have the teams play, it's this big in-state rivalry, and they play once uh, every year. But perhaps the most memorable game, 1974, it's February of 1974, marquette Seventeen and two ranked like number two or number three in in the country, and it's a cold February night. It's February fifth. There it's snowing outside. Marquette had beaten Wisconsin in the Milwaukee Classic a couple months earlier. So you, you've got here, here's the game. Wisconsin is ahead most of of the game, and then at the time, Wisconsin had these two like six eleven players, Kim and Kerry Hughes. They they were twins. And Wisconsin is ahead. And I might have the details slightly wrong, but, but with about 17 or 18 seconds left, Wisconsin is ahead like by a point. This is before the three point shots come in. And, uh, Wisconsin has the ball. Marquette fouls Wisconsin and one of the Hughes twins goes and he, he's got two free throws. He misses the first. McGuire calls a timeout. The great legendary Al McGuire calls a timeout. They come back guy misses a second free throw. So Marquette has the ball, 17 seconds left behind by one point. They they dribble it up court. They kind of fumble it around a little. And ultimately, it ends up in the hands of Maurice Lucas, who went on to have a very successful career in the pros. Maurice Lucas was this great big man, but he couldn't shoot outside shots for anything. So Lucas has the ball. The clock is running down. He's 20 feet away. He just flings it up. He flings it up. It goes through. So Marquette wins by a point. The arena goes absolutely bat poop crazy. You know, I mean, just people are nuts. Al McGuire jumps up on the scorer's table. He jumps up on the scorer's table, and this is the iconic photograph, and he's like raising his fist at the crowd and things like that. Well, well, you know, and this is the photograph that appears in the front page of the paper the next day. Well, what it turns out though is, it, see, when you look at the photograph, you see the huge crowd, you see everybody, you see McGuire on the table. Well, in about, well, it's about the fourth row, there's this guy wearing glasses who's standing up and who's making an obscene gesture at McGuire. He's got his middle finger raised, all right? And now this is the picture that's like the front page of the paper and stuff. Guy's got his middle finger raised. Turns out it's the father. Of the, these Hughes twins, you know, <laughs> that, that was his spontaneous reaction. It is one of the iconic photographs in Milwaukee sports history. And, and again, with Wisconsin playing Marquette there, the Journal Sentinel has, has, has this again. So if you, if you just want to look at it and understand what this rivalry was, the, the picture, it's got everything. It's got the Wisconsin coach in the foreground. He's kind of got his head down and he's walking off the court. You've got McGuire up, you know, waving his fist. And then you've got this guy who turns out to be the parent of two of the Wisconsin players flipping the bird at mcguire it is just it is milwaukee wisconsin sports history it is if you want to find like one iconic photograph of the marquette wisconsin rivalry this is it and they're bringing it back that was february of 1974 the rivalry renews on saturday and yes i will be there i don't think i'll be photographed making an obscene gesture to anyone but you know You just never know for sure. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, what's five million between friends? Stick around. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay. I hate to be the you-know-what in the punch bowl, but I have been skeptical about this from the beginning. For the last several years, a developer has been trying to push this idea of, of a ballpark commons down in Franklin and originally, Franklin ended up saying no, and then it went over to Oak Creek, and Oak Creek wasn't enthusiastic about it. Now it's back in, in in Franklin, and the idea is it's going to be this ballpark commons development, and it was signed off on what about a year and a half ago, and the the, the key element of this is you were going to have a. A baseball stadium that was going to seat, that is going to seat 4,000 people and you're going to have UWM that plays there and you're going to have a minor league baseball team that plays there and then all around it you were going to have this development that was going to supposedly come here and the development was going to be like retail and restaurants and maybe apartments and things like that. And of course the developer is the guy, he owns like the Rock Sports Complex which is in that, that area and this would have the, have the effect of of benefiting, you know, his facility as well. Now, reasonable people can disagree. I have always argued that I thought this was going to turn out to be a white elephant. I, I just, I, I, I believe, and you're talking to a baseball fan, but I have believed all along that trying to build a project around a, a four thousand seat minor, very very minor league baseball stadium where at best you're only going to get a handful of games in a given year, given all the other stuff that's there. I I just thought this was kind of doomed. Now, it's it's not to say that there might not be some cool things around there and stuff like that, but but you're talking about a commitment of tens of millions of dollars of public money. And my point had always been, if this is such a good deal – well, all right, do what, what people do, and that is, you know, go find the financing. I mean, that's, don't don't go to the government and ask the government to underwrite the financing through these tax-incremental financing districts where the government puts up the money and then gradually, if it works, it gets paid back over time. My response was always, well, I mean, if this is such a great deal, okay, well, go to conventional finance, pick up the phone and call investors and say, hey, I've got this great deal, give me $5 million, give me $10 million. I know that's – go to a bank. You know, get conventional financing, but that's not what we do for things anymore. We expect the taxpayers to pay on it. Well, all right, it's always been controversial, but that's fine. The city of Franklin signed off. They approved $22.5 million back in 2016, $22.5 million. And the project has been starting to, to move ahead. They've got, na- they've sold naming rights for the stadium. They've got uh, a minor league team that's coming and everybody, all right, they've been looking at this through, you know, rose colored glasses. And I, believe me, I don't want to root against it succeeding. I have just been a little bit skeptical about, uh, again, building a project around a minor league baseball stadium. But $22 million, people in Franklin decided it. Well, here's the follow up story, and the Journal Sentinel is reporting this. The, the developer, apparently is deciding, he says, $22.5 million. That's not enough. I, I need more. Uh, the Franklin's Ballpark Commons mixed-use development is seeking another $5.2 million in city financing help beyond the $22.5 million already approved. They're seeking additional cash, they say, because of increases in unforeseen development expenses. All right. They also want to add another property uh, to that TIF district, taking it off the tax rolls in the immediate future. Um, the new property tax, they say, well, don't worry. Again, just like the twenty two million dollars that we've already been fronted, the new property tax revenue would pay five point two million that we're seeking. We'll get this back. So the argument is, well, here, here's the deal. Um, things have cost more than they thought. There's been a higher regional demand for services, and we're experiencing additional requirements of several governmental agencies, including the city and WE Energies. So they want more. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. At this point in time, I don't know that the city of Franklin has any choice but to say yes because if they say no what happens is all the money they've already put on, is it at risk? But here's my question to you. At some point in time, do you say do you say no? I mean, the Bucks, for example, got $250 million in public contributions to build the Fiserv Forum. If the Bucks had turned around and said, you know what, um, things are costing more than we thought they were going to, and, you know, we want another $50 million. Would we have done that? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text line. All right, down there in Franklin, it's not open, but the developer already says, "Hey, that twenty two point five million dollars that we've been that's been committed, that's going to be enough. We want twenty percent more." Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. And what should the taxpayers do? We're back to discuss in just a minute. It's one fifty one. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 154, Jeff Wagner, WTNJ. I admit I've been skeptical about this Ballpark Commons project from the beginning. I I just, huge tax... Incremental financing district for this thing built around a 4,000-seat minor league ballpark, to me, never made sense. But I hope it works out. People in Franklin, the Common Council went ahead with this. $22.5 million commitment of public funds. Supposedly, it will be paid back by 2034. We'll, We'll see. But now the developer is saying, wait a second, wait a second, I need more money. Uh, Things have gone up. I've got unexpected costs or whatever, so I don't want that uh, twenty-two million. I want an extra five point two million on top of it. And now the Common Council is in a tough position. I mean, can they? Can you say no at this point in time? Does the developer have have the taxpayers of Franklin by the short and curlies? Let's talk to Mark in Franklin. Mark, you are on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Real well, thank you. Okay, so you are neck of the woods. What's going on here?
2: Uh, my question is: you, you made the comment that uh, you could say no, but then you could possibly lose that twenty-two million. But then, if you invest more, then you really can't. You have less chance of saying no. Is my understanding of this? So you're kind of digging yourself deeper.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, right? You've you know your your risk has gone up. I mean, this, this isn't like a million dollars. This is this is twenty percent on top of it. And they're saying, you know, we we need this. Yeah. You're you're right. If if my skepticism turns out to be correct and this thing doesn't take off like they promised it would or hoped it would, yeah, yeah, the taxpayers of Franklin are on the hook for this.
2: It just sounds like poor planning from the start.
0: Well, it it, it does. I mean, no, thanks to the call. I mean, I just don't, I'm with you. I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand why Franklin did this, number one. Number two, I don't understand how you can misjudge costs to this extent and, and not have a contingency plan for them and expect the taxpayers to bail you out. Kyle Tosa says they're stuck in the attitude of looking for the taxpayers to foot the remaining bills rather than being thankful for all the bills the taxpayers have already footed. Eddie from Franklin texts Jeff, I was in the running for naming the contest for the baseball team. My name was the Haymakers, but it looks like they chose the proper name by choosing the Milkmen. Because now they are going to be milking Franklin pretty good. Um, yeah. Um, let's see, another text. Uh, there is a choice. Say no and take ownership and then find a buyer. I'm tired of taxpayers bailing out bad businessmen. Well, the developer's not a bad business guy, but he, he certainly sold this idea to Franklin, getting Franklin to, again, front a bunch of costs. My assumption is you wouldn't necessarily do that if you could find private investors that thought it was a good deal. Here's a text. Also tired of government that can't be smart enough to write in provisions to cover risks like this. Up front um, all right Mike and Walker says I don't care how much it costs Jeff. I want that driving range complex Well all right <laughs> well that's that, that's it and that's see that's the idea it's, it's going to be built or I mean there's planning to have a big driving range and stuff like that and I, I admit that it sounds really cool and I, I've never argued that it doesn't sound cool. All right. Might be even something that I could see going down there. Like I say, the you know, driving range in the winter and stuff like that. It sounds like it's cool. I don't know that it's necessarily going to lead to this this huge development in like like residential and stuff. That to me seems a bit pie in the sky. But but if it's such a cool deal All right, then just use conventional financing. You know, go pick up the phone, call some investors, get them to contribute. That's, I mean, that's the way it typically operates when people in the business world want to buy things or want to buy investments. What you do is you pick up the phone, you call some of your buddies, or you call people who invest money and say, "Hey, I've got this great opportunity here. Invest in this. I'll pay you back." I, I think this was. I think this was a risky proposition, and I re- recognize I'm kind of out on an island on this because a lot of people have been, oh, this is just tremendous. This is just absolutely outstanding. I admit that I'm kind of out on an island on this particular situation, but but now that I hear before anything is open, you know, a year, two years after the initial thing goes through, you're already talking about wanting another $5 million on top of the $22 million commitment. That tells me... If I'm on the Common Council in Franklin, I'm waiting. I'm just taking a step back and saying, what's going on here? It's 159. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 207. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. The, the only, see, I, I'm trying to be a glasses half full guy here. All right. The stock market, the Dow Jones down 354 points. This is on top of like a... Seven or eight hundred point decline two days ago. Markets were closed yesterday. Alright, so Jeff, how can you be a glasses half full guy when you say the Dow is down three hundred plus points? Well, it's because it was down like six or seven hundred earlier today, so it's come back a, a bit. So it's it's brutal, it's bloody, it's ugly. Major league sell-off going on, but it was worse. The Nasdaq that's still only down 44 points. Um, so that's not as much of a carnage, but it's been, it's been bad up and down on Wall Street. And part of the thing that's frustrating is you, again, you don't know if what's going on is a reaction to economic fundamentals. Or whether it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to people trying to read tea leaves. Well, President Trump calls it comes out and says he's the tariff man and Wall Street doesn't like tariffs, and so that causes the stock market to plunge. That's one of the difficult things. You know, is this just a, a reaction and a hissy fit to something that some politician says, or is it a reflection of you know bigger stuff that's going on in the market? All right. The Chevy Volt, which is you know a hybrid no, it's, it's an electric car, but also it runs on gas. I mean, here's the deal. Chevy Volt, for example, uh, I'm looking at this. They say that uh, it's got a, I'm at their website, 53-mile battery range. So they say the, the average daily commute is about 40 miles, round-trip, meaning that uh, if they've got a 53-mile battery range, you should be able to commute without ever having to have the gas engine kicked in. Average commute is four, 40 miles, so you have an extra 13-mile thing if you want to go do some shopping on, on the side. Um, they say that the Chevy Volt has a, a total range of 420 miles with a full charge and a full tank of gas. So, what, the way it works is, it runs on the, the battery first, and then, you know, when, when, if you go over like that 53 miles on the battery, the volt kicks over to their gas engine. So they say, you know, between the battery and the gas engine, you could get 420 miles total. And they say that on average, you can go 1,100 miles between fill-ups with regular charging. So in other words, you know, you, you go home at night, you, you plug your car in, and so you start off the next day with a a full charge. You should be able—they claim—to get about eleven hundred miles between fill-ups with regular charging. Obviously, it's going to depend a little bit on your driving habits, but that's kind of compelling. You don't have to stop at gas stations or things like that. The price range of the Chevy Volt, the the stripped-down version, starts at around thirty-three grand, maybe a little bit more, thirty-three-five. It, it quickly goes up, but you know you can. You can get a a Chevy Volt with most of the stuff that you're going to want for a, around thirty-eight to forty thousand bucks, and and you could again if if you don't care about some stuff you you could go cheaper. So here's the interesting thing. Now I, I said that it starts out around thirty-three five, and you you can get something that would probably have all the features you'd really want around thirty-eight to forty. grand. Well, that that is a little bit misleading because. There is a tax credit. The federal taxpayers, and if you're a Chevy Volt driver, you're welcome, we subsidize your driving the car. Because there is a federal tax credit of $7,500 that you get if you buy one of these electric vehicles. So... 33.5 for the, the stripped down basic version. You're really probably talking about 26,000 by the time you get the, the federal tax credit there. So there's a $7,500 tax credit. Alright, here's where it gets kind of interesting. When Congress passed these tax credits back in, I believe, 2009, they capped them out. They said these tax credits only extend to the first 200,000 vehicles that a particular auto manufacturer sells. After 200,000 vehicles, then the subsidy drastically decreases, and then it it quickly goes away. So I think the way it works is it's $7,500 for the first 200,000, and then what happens is it drops off uh, could be a little bit wrong in this. It drops to like thir- half of that. And then it, it goes away like after a year and a half. So it it drops down. The whole idea behind these these rebates was let's let the automakers let's let the business get started. And, and so that's why, you know, we'll give them the tax. We, we want to we want the, we want to be pro environment. We like the fact that you're not using as many fossil fuels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we'll let you get a foothold in the market, and we'll give you an incentive. But this isn't going to be a permanent bailout. It's going to be an incentive. Get yourself started. Well, Tesla, which is the electric car, Tesla, they've hit their 200,000 uh, vehicle limit. So there's no longer the incentives the tax tax breaks for Tesla's general motors with the volt is close to selling 200,000 units. And they estimate in the next year or so, they're going to hit that 200,000 unit thing. And so their tax incentives are going to drop down dramatically. And ultimately they're going to disappear probably by 2022. If the present sales rates keep up, there are a number of people who are saying, well, wait, Wait, we, we have to Congress needs to act. We need to extend these incentives. If you take away the tax incentives, well that's gonna cause the, the bottom to fall out of the electric car market and won't that be terrible? So we should figure out a way to continue them. Why cut it off at two hundred thousand? President Trump for for his perspective, you know, he's calling for an end of all electrical vehicle subsidies. Now, you need some congressional action for that, but even if, if Congress, the reality is, if Congress does nothing, these electric vehicle subsidies are going to go away pretty quickly. The volt's going to be the next to disappear, maybe by 2020, at least in the $7,500 range. Okay. 414-799-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage talk and text line. Should Congress should we continue through the use of these tax credits to subsidize the sale of electric vehicles? I mean, this has been going on for a number of years now. The auto market, well, they, they have a foothold that's in, and the taxpayers have been underwriting the cost of every single one of these electric cars that have been sold. Well, now they're hitting that num- 200,000 number. Should we continue this ad infinitum? Or is it time for the electric car market to rise or fall on its own without government subsidies? 414-799-1620. That's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 215, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Should we keep giving taxpayer subsidies to people for buying electric cars? We'll discuss. Stick around. Doing a little chair dancing here, 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I remember when that song was big, Summer of Whatever, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by the Hollies. Ah, Can't go wrong with that. The attack on Pearl Harbor happened 77 years ago. Many Wisconsin residents were stationed in Hawaii at that time. Eric Bilstadt takes a look back 621 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Justin points out, Jeff, those specs that you gave on the electric vehicles, just so you know, um, they're for use in moderate temperatures with minimal use of lights, heater, etc. Practical electric range in our climate in the winter is much less with cold affecting the battery, plus continuous use of the heater, the defroster, the lights, at etc. These are best in Arizona, California, and Florida, not in Wisconsin. Yeah, that that's probably true, but I, I don't really want to debate the merits of, of the electric car or whether it's practical or not. I have a couple acquaintances, one in particular. I have one, one friend who, who has a Tesla, and just absolutely loves it when he hears me talking about gas prices or telling a story about stopping at a gasoline station at a convenience store gas station to buy lottery tickets or something. He will always text me or call me and say, "What is this gas station thing that you speak of?" Because I drive a Tesla, etc. And I I respect that. I, I look if if you for whatever reasons decide that this is your choice of vehicle, I'm I'm okay with that. I, I say go with God. I guess at this point in time, though. And feel free to disagree with me. I think it's time for these subsidies to end. These, all right, we we wanted, as a policy matter, We said, okay, we want to encourage people to, you know, try out these cars, to drive these cars. We want to give the automakers an incentive to get started with this. And so that's why there was a limit. Well, all right, we've we've had that. This has gone on for a number of years. And now, like I say, Tesla and GM, they're pushing that 200,000-unit limit. And after that, the, the subsidies drop off rapidly. All right, Now you've reached a point where I I think it's the consumer that ends up speaking. If you cannot, for whatever reason, make these automobiles attractive enough to sell without having the government underwrite the cost of, I don't know, you know, 25% of the vehicle or 20% of the vehicle or whatever, I, I think at that time, point in time, it tells you, well, well, maybe, maybe because of gas prices or whatever, gas price is so low the availability of oil so um, plentiful maybe it tells you that uh, electric cars it's not the time for them yet I, and I don't know I'm not making a judgment again one way or the other I think it's super if you want to drive an electric car that that's fine and people that I know that drive them swear by them and that's that's okay but if you want to do it, I don't think that I, or the rest of the people who don't drive those cars should be supporting your decision with a subsidy. It's time, in my opinion, for these cars to stand on their own. If because of all the different appeals that they have, and the mileage, and the fact that you can go 1,100 miles without stopping at a gas station and all that stuff, if if, if that's if that's a selling point, great. And I understand why that would be attractive. But in this case, this is, to me, the ultimate example of the government picking winners and losers. If you can't make it without a government subsidy of $7,500, well, I I think maybe that tells you that you just can't make it, and maybe the time for the electric cars just has not come yet. This is consistent. I have felt the same way about these ethanol mandates. To me, it is absolutely absurd that we say that, okay, you you have to – Use this percentage of ethanol and gasoline. I think it should be. All that is, is again, it's a subsidy to, you know, the corn growers in Iowa. The whole idea being, look, if if ethanol is great gas, that's fine don't give out the subsidies, just let this go, and we'll see how this all works out. And again, I don't begrudge people driving electric vehicles. If you want to drive an electric vehicle, that's great. There's all sorts of reasons. I appreciate that. I'm not at that point yet, but I appreciate that decision that you are making. I just think at some point in time, we can't have the taxpayers continue to underwrite this particular choice. And what this means is, if it means that General Motors or Tesla or any of the other manufacturers have to adjust their pricing or figure out a way to cut their profit margins or whatever, well, all right, that means that's what they're going to have to do. Here's a text. No subsidies for GM. The American taxpayer is still owed around $11.5 billion from GM. When is enough enough for a failing car company? I think that's a fair question on this. Again, you want to buy one, That that's fine, but... You don't you don't find the federal government subsidizing the purchase of other vehicles as a general rule. So why should we be subsidizing the purchase of these electric vehicles? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Tony in Caledonia. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon. What do you think? We, I think we subsidize these cars, these battery operated vehicles, continuously with them not paying any highway tax for
0: the fuel um well yeah or, or less right because typically the way we subsidize our roads like it is through the gasoline tax that's the Gas principal and way license. right Gas and licensing. right so they, they pay licensing but you're exactly right if if you're not if if you're only filling up one tank every 1100 miles you are getting a disproportionate use of the highway um compared to the people who don't have electric cars, you're incredibly absolutely right. A,
2: incredibly, a lot because they're talking about raising the gas tax here again. Well, that's not going to affect these guys. They'll vote right for it.
0: Um. Yeah. No. Thanks for calling. Well, right. I mean, that's that. That's again. That that's one. See, that's one of the reasons why there is an incentive to go ahead and own an electric vehicle. And I'm not here trying to discourage people from owning electric vehicles. I mean, that is one that, hey, you you don't have to, you don't, you're buying one tank of gas every 1,100 miles, whereas other people are probably buying three tanks of gas every 1,100 miles, if if those numbers are true. So you're saving, you know, I don't know, eight, ten gallons of fill-up. You know, you're saving, you know, what, if, what's the gas tax? I mean, the state tax is 33 cents a gallon. It's about 50 cents a gallon between state and federal. So you're saving 50 cents a gallon. Well, I mean, okay, I understand that, you know, that can add up to some money over time. That's the incentive you have for driving, again, the electric vehicles. So I don't have a problem with that. It's an incentive for people to want to do it. I'm just saying I don't think the taxpayer should be underwriting, you know, $7,500. I, would I, Would I change something dramatically? Would I go into Congress and take away that incentive before they hit the 200,000 units? No, but they're going to hit it very soon. Electric cars have become established. People know what their pluses are. People know what their minuses are. And I don't think the taxpayers should continue to subsidize the sales. Let them rise. Let them fall on their own merits. 226 Jeff Wagner WTMJ. It's 2:28. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 2018 marks the 13th year of Kids to Kids Christmas from Capco Metal Stamping and those of us here at WTMJ. In that time, thanks to your generosity, we've given away nearly 200,000 toys to kids in need. To find out where you can drop off a toy or make a donation, head to WTMJ.com right now. And don't forget that tomorrow, tomorrow. We will be live at Albrecht Century in Delafield. It's right off the freeway. We've been there for a number of years now. Stop by. I will be there from noon until 3. The Wisconsin Afternoon News Gang will be there from 3 until 6. Help us spread the holiday cheer. Come up, say hi, drop off a toy. It's our big Kids to Kids Christmas toy collection event. Now, a number of people are saying, well, Jeff, didn't Chevy discontinue the Volt? And, And, yes, that's that is correct. I think the the plans are that ultimately they are going to discontinue the, the Volt, but they're still going to be making new ones for a while. In addition, this, this maximum, this 200,000-unit maximum applies to any electric car made by the manufacturer. So there's talk about how maybe they're going to shift. Uh, what they were doing with the Volt and use that technology and transfer it to something else. So the the whole idea is, and I I say this in general to the electric cars, no problem at all with them. But again, I think it's one of those deals where if you're going to do it, well, you, you should stand rise or fall on its own merit, not have the taxpayers subsidize it. Just saying it is 230. It's 2.34. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, the green and gold prep for their first game without head coach Mike McCarthy since 2005. What does interim coach Joe Philbin want to see from his team? The rest of the way, Packers Hall of Famer, Larry McCarran weighs in at 3.20 this afternoon on Wisconsin's afternoon news. I, um, I like Joe Philbin. He, a, HBO every year does this thing called hard knocks, which is where they, um, th- they go into the training camp of, of a team and a couple of years ago when Joe Philbin it was his first year as a head coach of the Miami Dolphins and they they, they were there. That was the subject of hard knocks and I, I it was real interesting. I actually went back and rewatched the other night after Philbin was named the interim head coach i went back and i watched i found and watched two of those the episodes of the hard knocks thing there's typically like four or five and i i i like him he was um he comes across as a real straight shooter and a no-nonsense type of guy and his tenure in miami didn't work out very well but that's not necessarily his fault sometimes it's just the players you surround yourselves around all right this is a story that i admit it just it goes it goes through me and it, it raises these questions of how, how can we allow – what can we do to stop stuff like this? If you will remember a number of months ago, the, the, the story surfaced about how if you want to ride a bus in Milwaukee County and you decide you don't want to pay, they won't make you pay. It, it's just – it's sort of like a, a free shuttle service because the, the drivers are specifically instructed to not confront passengers who, who won't pay – you can remind them, hey, you need to pay. This is what the fare is. But if they don't, they are specifically told, just let it go. And they're also told not to not to call security, not to stop the bus. Let's not delay things. We'll just let the, the people ride for free. And again, their justification is we don't want to delay the other passengers and we don't want to antagonize the people who are getting on for free. Now, I, I sympathize with that that concern. But at the same time, that seems to me to be a heck of a way to run a railroad, no pun intended, where you're depending on on fares and you just have a policy where, well, if you don't pay that, that's OK. We're going to look the other way. Well, I mean, I understand why they have this policy. Here's the story as reported on Fox six two accused in beating of Milwaukee County Transit System bus driver hit in the eye with a broom handle. All right, let me read you the story as it appeared on Channel 6. Two people are charged in connection with the alleged assault of a, a bus driver on November 19th. The accused are Jaquan Lampkin, 17. 17. And Terrell Poe 23. The two face the following criminal charges. Aggravated battery of a victim 62 years or older. That's the 23 year old guy. Carrying a concealed weapon. That's the 17 year old. Possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. Disorderly conduct. Use of a dangerous weapon. All right. According to the criminal complaint, officers responded to the area around 60th and Hampton where a 67-year-old on-duty bus driver told officers he had picked up three people, including Poe, that is the 23-year-old, and Lampkin, the 17-year-old. The bus driver told police that Poe is a regular rider who never pays bus fare. All right, so the guy's a regular rider who never pays bus fare. And they, they just, the system, I'm not faulting the driver here, the system just ignores it. I mean, here you have this this guy who's just a leech. He gets on, he's not paying the bus fare. He said, the driver said, Lampkin and the other person usually do. But on November 19th, none of the three paid their way. Ah, oh, they just kind of like go past the driver. And of course, I I get it. I mean, the 17-year-old's probably like, hey, you know, why, why should I pay my buck or whatever it is when nobody else pays here? So the three of them just get on the bus walk past the bus driver, go straight to the back of the bus. The bus driver then told police that he he asked them, he said, hey, you're supposed to pay the fare, at which point in time these three losers started yelling at the bus driver. A short time later, according to the criminal complaint, the 23-year-old was yelling at the bus driver. I can just imagine this. How dare you tell me I'm sp- well, it's probably not saying how dare you. My guess is there's a lot of the F word being thrown around. And you know, how, what, what do you mean telling me that I have to pay to ride on the bus? So anyway, Poe was yelling at the bus driver. He picked up a broom that was behind the handicapped seats and tried to attack the bus driver driver says, it's a 67-year-old bus driver, he attempted to protect himself from the attempt, but Poe hit him in the right eye with the broom handle. The complaint then indicates that while Poe was allegedly attacking the bus driver, the 17-year-old exited the bus out the rear door. He then walked to the front of the bus reached his right hand into a shoulder bag, and pulled out a handgun that he raised up in the air. Now, this is 60th and Hampton in Tom Barrett's Milwaukee. So you've got the these these punks, these thugs, get on a bus. Nobody pays the bus fare. When the bus driver asks them to pay, one guy starts screaming, takes a broom, and starts beating the hell out of the bus driver. The other punk gets off the bus, pulls out a gun, Raises it in the air, points the firearm at the driver of the bus. It gets better. At this time, the complaint says that Poe, this is the guy who's beating the crap out of the bus driver with the broom, screams, Shoot this blank. The bus driver then opens the door, all three individuals flee. This is all, of course, captured on the bus surveillance cameras. So you've got the 23 year old who just rides the bus for free, who gets upset when somebody asks him to pay. His reaction is to grab a broom and beat the bus driver. The 17-year-old, who occasionally pays but decided, I'm not going to do it today, he's carrying a gun. He gets out and points the gun at the bus driver. (sighs) Documents obtained said the driver still had blurred vision a week after the attack. Those who know the driver said this incident left him shaken, to which I would say, no kidding. When police interviewed Poe, that's the 23-year-old, he said he had bought, purchased the firearm that Lampkin was in possession of approximately eight months prior. It's a nine-millimeter pistol. Uh, Police, Poe told police that he bleach-wiped the gun and bullets and then sold it for two hundred and fifty bucks. So just just another day on the Milwaukee County bus system. Now where am I leading up with this? Uh, other than first of all, I understand that this is an extreme situation, but the reality is, the bus company has got to do a better job of getting control of the ridership. If I were a member of the bus drivers union, I would be screaming. At management saying you have to do more to protect us you cannot put us in this situation and the I mean look I understand I think it's crazy absolutely capital C crazy that the bus company allows these thugs and punks to ride for free and that's what they do they, they allow them to ride for free because all you have to do is refuse to ride and then nobody's gonna push on it I think that's crazy but at the same time I also agree that it's not the responsibility of a 67-year-old bus driver to try to, you know, get into altercations with these 17-year-old punks who are carrying guns or these 23-year-old thugs who are willing to assault people. I mean that that's not what their job is. The truth of the matter is the bus company's got to do a better job of protecting number 1 the bus drivers and number 2 the other passengers that are on the bus and then number 3 they've got to enforce the rules this, this idea that we're just we're going to lose thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars every year by allowing the thugs and the punks just to manipulate the system get on the bus and ride for free is ridiculous so you know what do you do well i look i don't claim to be an expert in bus security but to me this is a classic example uh, of why you need a regular police presence if i'm the county bus system i'm talking to the new incoming sheriff and saying we got to work something out and we either have to have our own security guards or we have to have sheriffs that are out there dealing with this type of thing because it quickly escalates and again what struck me is this 23 year old guy who beat the bus driver with the broom he's apparently a regular i mean they know him the bus driver says yeah he rides this bus all the time he he never ever pays but you, you can't allow this type of stuff to go on. I mean, if I was a regular rider on this bus route and something like this happened and you've got the 17-year-old punk that gets on with the gun and the 23-year-old who decides he's going to beat the bus driver within an inch of his life with a broom all because they had the audacity to ask him to pay, I, I mean, you think I'm going to go back and ride that bus again? I mean, seriously. And if you don't get a handle on this, well, how soon is this stuff going to spill over to the the trolley? For example, you know, Tom Barrett's pet project. I mean, you've got to get a handle on this type of stuff and you can't turn your back on bad behavior. And I I, look, I, I sympathize. I'm not critical. The bus driver here is the victim. I understand why the bus company doesn't doesn't want them to get into these altercations. But at the same time, if you've got bad guys that are riding these buses, you've got to do something to get them off the bus, get them prosecuted, get them put in jail. 414-799-1620. That's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. I mean, it's, you got to get a handle on this. Bus company has to get a handle on this. You can't expect the walker, you can't expect the the riders and the drivers to have to put up with this type of thing. Let's talk to William in Illinois. William, you're first. Good afternoon.
2: Uh, Good afternoon. I was a uh, school bus driver, one of the uh, Seaworth school in Rockford, and I was assaulted on a bus. The problem is you're worried about when they become adults, but they're allowed to get away with everything in school. Mm -hmm. And then they continue to get away with everything. And the reason They can't discipline or get rid of the drivers or the students is the concept of disparate impact, and that is the fact.
0: Well right the, the I mean thanks to go i mean nowadays the, the the term that's thrown around in Milwaukee is mass incarceration we We don't want to lock up too many of this type of person or that type of person well I, I will tell you I mean somebody at the age of twenty three with a criminal record who's buying guns for seventeen year olds and who's beating bus drivers up with brooms maybe maybe we need to look worry less about mass incarceration and more about. Keeping people safe. Just saying. And I look, I don't have the answer. I, I don't. But these are these types of stories that happen all too frequently. The bus company has to figure out how to keep the bus drivers more safe. That That's just number one. And maybe that means you know more protective things or something like that. That's number one. Number two, they have to figure out a way to say, look, we're, we're going to require people to pay the fares. You can't just allow people to get on and off as, as they want. They have to be made to pay. It's not fair to anybody else. And number three, if you've got a small subset of violent thugs that are riding the buses, well, then what we need to do is we need to catch them, we need to arrest them, and we need to put them in prison until, I don't know, they get it out of their system. Just saying. To, and, and I guess the, the fundamental thing is, you know, what is this going to do if this type of crime does end up spreading over to Tom Barrett's trolley? I mean, where, how are we going to react then? Now, this was a Milwaukee County bus And again, the trolleys are free, so you wouldn't presumably, at least at this point in time, have anything setting it off. But, you know, once this starts happening, it has the effect of discouraging ridership. If the word gets out that, hey, you know, somebody's going to get beaten with a broom handle if you look at them the wrong way, alright, there's nothing that's going to kill a transportation system more than people thinking they are unsafe on it. So, you got to get a handle on this. Whether it's Chris Abley or Tom Barrett or the new county sheriff or the new police chief, you can't allow this stuff to go unchecked. 248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 250, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 2018 marks the 13th year of Kids to Kids Christmas from Capco Metal Stamping and this year radio station. In that time, thanks to your generosity, we've given away nearly 200,000 toys to kids in need. To find out where you can drop off a toy or make a donation, go to our website, WTMJ.com. Do it now. Don't forget, tomorrow we will be live at Albrecht Century in Delafield. Stop by from noon until 6. Help us spread the holiday cheer. Hey, while you're at the website, you can go to our mobile apps. You can subscribe to various podcasts, including mine. I know lots of people do that. I very much appreciate it. All right. Matter of fact, I, I you know we we're talking about this idea of, of being able to ride for free if you refuse to if you refuse to pay the bus fare. Uh, th- this was an issue. It came up a couple months ago. And Look, and I understand it's a. I don't think I, you couldn't pay me enough to drive a Milwaukee County bus. I mean, I I can only imagine. You know what you end up having to deal with. I mean, you're paid to to drive the bus. The rule is that you a bus driver is allowed to ask for the fare one time. And then after that, if the person refuses to pay, you, you just ignore it. And their policy is. We don't stop the bus. You don't call security because we don't want to delay paying passengers. So you just ignore it. And, of course, that just reinforces the bad behavior. In this case, even asking for it once caused this thug to grab a broom. People are saying, how did the guy bring a broom on the bus? No, there was a broom that was on the bus, apparently, um, for cleanup or whatever. Grabbed the broom and used that as a weapon. But, I mean, here's the numbers. They estimate that the county bus system loses – about $28,000 a month or $337,000 a year because of what they call fair evasion, F-A-R-E, fair the uh, fair evasion. People not paying. Now that that's a small portion of, of the overall, you know, revenue that, that they generate, but still I mean, given the fact that you've got the county that's constantly looking to economize and cutting bus routes and all, I mean, $337,000 is quite a chunk of change. And I'm not this guy. Now, sometimes, sometimes it's somebody that doesn't. You've got two bucks, but you don't have two and a quarter. And and I'm not saying that that should be a big deal. I'm not saying toss somebody off a bus because they're a dime short or they're a nickel short. But my sense is the bigger problem is, again, people like this character who attacked the bus driver who just decide that paying these fares on the bus route, that's for the little people. That That's not for people like me. How, how dare you ask that? And that's why... I think this is an issue that the bus company has to figure out what they're going to do with. You shouldn't, number one, be able to ride for free, and number two, you shouldn't feel that you can attack bus drivers or other passengers on the bus willy-nilly and just be able to get away with it. Now, in this particular case, the bus driver, thankfully, is going to recover, but like the story says, he's shaken up. No kidding, he's shaken up. I'd be shaken up, too. Any of us would be shaken up if you have some 23-year-old thug that's beating you within an inch of your life with a broom, telling his 17-year-old thug buddy, who's now pulled out a handgun, to, hey, shoot the guy. I mean, all right, just another day on the Milwaukee County buses. I guess they've got to do something to get a handle on security, to protect drivers, to protect other riders, and to make sure that people pay what they're what they're supposed to do when they pay. Is that too much to ask? Just asking. It is two fifty four. When we come back, we're going to find out what Scott Warris and it's Scott. No, it's Mike Spaulding and Melissa what they have on their minds today. Stick around, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.